Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is once again, Dr. Dan Lyons. This week, I did something I haven't done before. I usually pick a topic for my guest, but this week, I picked a guest for my topic. I wanted to have a conversation about the philosophic, scientific, and artistic implications of Dr. Gonstead's admonition that use boys adjust too hard, too often, and in too many places, followed by you don't know the power of chiropractic. I think this is a very important statement. Nearly all of us know it, but how best should we apply it and be guided by it? When I thought of this topic, Dr. Lyons immediately came to mind. Fortunately, he was kind enough to join us once again. So without any further ado, Dr. Dan Lyons. Dr. Lyons, thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Dan. So we're just going to dive right into this because um, this was a topic that came to my mind and I was like, there's one guy I can talk to about this. Um, Dr. Gonstead used to start how, all of his how, seminars. How, how come you didn't have that guy on the show? <laughs> he wasn't available, so I called you. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Gonstead started all of his seminars by saying, use boys to just too hard too often and in too many places. And a lot of Gonstetters know that saying, but I don't think we spend a lot of time really talking about the details of what he meant by that and what he was really talking about. And I realized that as I thought about it, I thought, you know, there's a philosophical aspect to that. There's a scientific aspect to that. And then ultimately there becomes an art aspect to that. And each one of those statements by itself is a big topic all by itself. So I thought, let's dive into each one individually. And because of your background, you can talk about it from both the philosophical and the scientific because I've read enough of the green books to know that there is a philosophical aspect when it comes to you're trying to create, you were trying to promote adaptation and you can overstimulate. So let's start. What's, what's the first one? Use boys are just too hard. So let's start by talking about too hard. What, what did he mean um, by too hard? Well, first I want to go back to so <clears throat> It's not an overstimulation thing. Chiropractic does not stimulate or inhibit. Right. You know, uh, BJ was quite clear on that. It gets us back to par. And I hate golf, so I, I just made my skin crawl reading that book. <clears throat> but all chiropractic does is get us back to normal. And so, you know, in, in 2020, when everybody was talking about boosting the immune system and everybody was coming down, on, I mean, technically they were right because chiropractic doesn't boost the immune system, just gets the immune system to normal. Because if you take a normal immune system and boost it, now you have a hyperactive or autoimmune nervous system. So we just, if it's uh, hyperactive due to subluxation, then we would suppress the immune system. Technically, we just get it to normal. That's not a suppression. It just gets it to normal. If your immune system suppressed and, and due to subluxation and subluxation is corrected, then it comes up to normal or par, you know, so then some people say boost it. It doesn't, it just gets us to par. And so, that's, that's very important because we were not stimulating or inhibiting. Uh, but then, uh, you know, too hard. We all, when we, when we talk about it, we always say that, you know, this, you know, when we thrust, that's the adjustment. And that is not the adjustment. The adjustment is what innate intelligence does with that force. If it can adapt it, to correct the subluxation, then the subluxation is corrected and adjustment has been given. 
if it can't, then you manipulated and you helped bruise, break, or subluxate the individual. And uh, I forget which book it is in, but they have actually levels of subluxation, you know, due to the force that comes in. One will subluxate, one will uh, break, one will dislocate. And so the it's a our thrust is a universal force same as heat same as a fall same as the sandwich we're going to eat for lunch those are all universal forces and they come in the forms of the three t's the thoughts traumas and and auto suggestion or or uh uh or thoughts traumas and toxins uh, but thoughts is really auto suggestion in the in the books they changed it to thoughts because three t's is kind of cool <laughs> and you know, you can have too much force, too little. Uh, everything in life is Goldilocks. You you heard me give that talk. You know, it's it's too hot, it's too cold, it's just right. And we want to be just right. But if you are not getting the results you think you should, what do you do? You go get the next bigger hammer and you hit harder. And... When you start out in school, you're not good at visualizing the the subluxation in the body. You can see the x-ray, but that was when the patient was standing and now they're laying on the table. They've changed their position. They've walked. They've lived uh, days, weeks, months, maybe years if you don't take a lot of x-rays from the time that was taking. And so things have changed. And, you know, I find every time I take a new x-ray, that adjustment, that first adjustment is always amazing compared to the previous ones because I've got a little new line of drive, a little new, uh, you know, the rotation, something's different about that subluxation. Now I see it. So now when I adjust, it's that much smoother. But when you're a student, you're horrible at it. You know, they have the the four levels of, of uh, you know, expertise, you know, unconsciously incompetent. There's a skill that exist and you don't even know that you suck at it but you do you know and then you get to chiropractic college and you find out oh you know i I don't know how to adjust so now you're conscious of your incompetence and then you keep working at it and you become consciously competent and this is I, i love like when you're teaching uh occiput you know you give a listing and you can see everybody's eyes roll back in their head and they're like okay it's gone it's gone ps so i gotta go i gotta tip the head like this and it's gone RS, so I got to go like this. And they're working through it so consciously they can do it. And then you get to the point where you are unconsciously competent. And that's hopefully where your instructor is. And he's talking or she is talking about, you know, the listing and they're talking and stuff. And all of a sudden they wind up and they're not even really thinking about it. And all they're, they're set up to set the PSRSRP occiput. And, uh, but when we're young, we don't have that skill. And if we're not consciously working on that skill and refining it, we just become a bigger hammer and we just hit harder and harder and harder and harder and hope that the body can adapt to that extra force. Yeah. I used to joke years ago that in chiropractic, the mindset seems to be that if at first you don't succeed, just push harder, just push harder and and three more times. (laughs) Yeah. Because the tendency is, I think, is to think I just need to do more of what I'm already doing rather than go back and think, well, do I need to be doing something different? <clears throat> and that for me with students, I always wanted to train them that your first thought should be, so, should I do something different? Not should I do more of what's not working? Um, 
just to exactly. be a pilot. And, and there was, I remember when I was in school, there was a couple of docs that were uh, nicknamed, one was nicknamed the Hammer and Gonstead <laughs> Docs, and the other was nicknamed the Sledgehammer. And, and one time the sledgehammer showed up at school in, in my class to get uh, his uh, six cervical adjusted by the hammer. And uh, sledgehammer was, was a fairly stout individual. And so he's sitting in the chair, proper position, you know, uh, heels on the ground, toes up, no strap. And the hammer thrusted, lifted him a good four to six inches, his butt off the chair, and, and it didn't move. <laughs> and so then he just hunkered down and, you know, really, and I'm like, oh, God, I can't, can you imagine doing that to your grandmother? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> your child, yeah. That's not And that's, work. you know, uh, the first time I ever adjusted uh, Dr. Phyllis Markham, her office, uh, her home was just down the street from my office. And she she comes in and I adjust her and, and she just sat up and said, well, that just won't do at all. And, and teetered out of the office. And, you know, next couple of weeks later, I see her at seminar and I am feeling super awkward. And she's just like, oh, hello, Dr. Lyons. How are you today? You know, and we went over our films. It was like nothing happened. And a few months later, she comes back in the office. She goes, this is ridiculous. I can't keep driving two and a half hours to see uh, Larry Troxell to get adjusted when you're right here. So. You know, she just started this discussion about how to adjust. And so I always say, if you find the, the smallest, most osteoporotic woman you can, and if you can adjust her without breaking anything and, and help her, then you can help anybody. Because mm -hmm. it's not about the force. It's not, a, well, it is about the force to a degree. It's more about the specificity of the force. If you have the right line of correction, everything everything's great. Yeah, because I was going to say, was, isn't part of not adjusting too hard an element of the pa patient being receptive of what you're about to do? And the more receptive they are, you can actually give a fairly decent force without it being traumatic in any way. But if they're not receptive, even a light force could become traumatic. So, exactly. That's what, feel the pulse of the patient. I mean, there's so many, and it, there's so much uh, philosophical wisdom in all the, all the Gonstead sayings. If you go on Google and just type in Gonstead quotes, it takes you to the GCSS page and it has a bunch of quotes in there. And, you know, as having gone through the philosophy diplomate and seeing everything through my philosoph uh, philosophical eyes first, I see the philosophy everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you didn't do that and you're just a Gonstead person, you're like, oh, Dr. Gonstead's that do this. But there's, there's, there's layers and layers and layers there. And if, if the patient's not ready to receive the adjustment, you know, or it's not the right table, then, then you're in trouble. You are going to, uh, uh, the patient's going to struggle to receive the adjustment and you're going to be frustrated and they're not going to be happy. And, and next thing you know, you're, you're losing the patient or you're, you're dropping the hammer. Yeah, I just heard a, uh, something the other day that, I, that kind of got my attention. They said a principle is simply um, a way or an approach to dealing with something that is predictable and repeatable. Say that again? A principle is simply an approach to dealing with something that is um, predictable and repeatable. So principles don't work if you have tremendous variation 
But when you have something like the human body that when it comes to subluxations, because we have these, I mean, a listing's a listing, a subluxation is a subluxation, that most of what we have, while people say, oh, that's just a rule Gonstead made up, I always thought, no, it's a principle because he saw so many of these things over and over that when you have that kind of repetition, you go, you know what, this isn't as wildly unpredictable as people think. And if I come up with a principle, they can start to see that it's not as unpredictable as they might think. There's a, there's a, repeat, a pre, repeating nature and a, and a predictable nature uh, behind the subluxation that keeps you from, uh, when you don't see that, I think you get lost easy. You, yep. you look at an x-ray, you look at a patient, you're like, I don't even know, I'm lost. But when you can get back to that, well, it's, it's a human being, it's no different than any other, the spine works the same way, get back into that repeatability and then it's not so hard to handle. Yeah. Everything should be, you know, in that normal variation. You know, I always joke that, you know, <clears throat> remember that uh, you are unique, just like everyone else. So, you know, yeah. it's that dichotomy. So yeah. the, the principles are there because they're, it's kind of like a, maybe a stereotype, you know, they're, it's, it's true often enough that that becomes a default, like uh, in the page yesterday, today, uh, last night, uh, a young doc says she's having her first uh, uh, bedwetter, 12 year old bedwetter yes. come in, you know, and, and she's like, I've never seen one, you know, what do I look for? And people are like, you know, S2 and this. And, and I said, find it, accept it where you find it, fix it and leave it alone. And then I went back and said, you know, I'm not, not trying to be a smart ass here, but there's a reason why, you know, when I, and I listed off all the things that I have found that when I corrected that, when the body corrected that subluxation, then the, the patient stopped bedwetting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, the, the entire pelvis, most of the lumbars and, uh, you know, a bunch of upper cervical stuff. I think mm -hmm. T12 was even in there, but so you can't say, well, we got to go to this. Yes. As you find S2 more, more often than not, but you find a lot of L2s as well. And so mm -hmm. you don't, you don't want to be in the right one. That's why you, that's why we have all the tools and we do all the work and you can't be upset with the results you didn't get from the work you didn't do. You know, so if you're not scoping and you're not palpating, and you don't have an x-ray and you're just going to go off cookbook chiropractic. Sure. Sometimes you're going to get things right, but a lot of times you're going to get things wrong. For me, when I was first starting, and I, if I had a case like that, um, I might in my head think, oh, bedwetting, it's probably S2. But then I start doing the evaluation. And a lot of times it was the scope. As I'm scoping, the scope is telling me, no, it's not <laughs> S2. It's over here. And at a point, I can't argue with the scope, and I palpate. I'm like, you know, all my findings are at, say, L2. They're not at S2. I'd be a fool to hammer on S2. Let's do L2 and see what happens. And that was got, what got me out of getting in that mindset is letting the scope argue with me and win. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it guided me right there. You know, and when you it, – it's really tough because most uh, humans are visually oriented – and when you're looking at that x-ray and you can see right there, there's a big tubercle S2. You're like, ah, <laughs> you're scoping. They're like, how do I make a reading at S2? Yeah. If I put my fingertip over the tip of the probe on this side and oh, see, there's a break right there. I see it. You know, it's, yeah. you just gotta, you gotta get good with the tools and use them. Let the tools work for you. Yeah, you also end up in the when you're first starting into the mode of I need it to be S2 because I'm not sure I can give a good adjustment at L2, so <laughs> I need this to be an S2 because I can do that one, um, and you have to work past that as well. Mm -hmm. and so um, 
Yeah, but, I think. But, you know, I always used to say that if you had two chiropractors, you have a choice between two chiropractors to take care of you. One of them can't find the subluxation, but can move any bone six ways from Sunday. And the other one can find the subluxation, but couldn't adjust their way out of a wet paper bag. I'm going to take the second one because eventually that doctor will get me well. But the mm-hmm. first one's going to kill me because they're going to be creating subluxations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, you're better off. And if you don't ever work, everybody likes to work on their strengths. You know, uh, you know, if you're a quarterback, you just want to, th- you know, throw the ball. You don't want to work on your run game because you don't want to run. But that's what makes you, sets you apart because all quarterbacks can throw. Quarterback that can uh, throw and run, they're, they're, future hall of famer potentially. So if you can't adjust an S2, then you need to seek out the S2s and work on adjusting S2s so that uh, you get better at them. You know, your, your buddy down the street's got an S2. You say, let me take care of that patient. I'll just come to your office and, and work on it. Cause I got to get good at them. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously this doesn't happen anymore, but when you were younger and just starting out, um, did you ever give an adjustment where as soon as you gave the adjustment, you went up ah, too hard. It was too deep. It was too much. And what would be the characteristics of that for somebody who might do that and didn't know that that's what they did? Oh man, that's a great question. I don't, you know, that, that never happens. You know, <laughs> that's what I would go <laughs> Never, with. never happened. I remember adjusting a knee one time and I thought I dislocated it, uh, but the patient got up and I was like, Oh, that was perfect. And I was like, all right. I checked it for stability and it wasn't that there was no instability and uh, that was fine. Um, You know, I don't think you really can know initially because, you know, principle six, there is no process which does not require time. And, you know, if you're if you thrust so hard that you broke something, you would know that right away. But all the other stuff, you don't really know. You know, uh, most docs don't post scope. So if you post scope right away, you might know. Uh, if you, when they come back for their next visit, that's usually when you know that you thrust too hard and and stirred something up. But uh, I think you see it most in the, in the, on the bench. And it's not so much the thrust with the hand, it's the hip with the hips. Yeah. You know, and I urge everybody to go back and read all the lumbar, all the pelvic bench adjusting chapters and and see where it says you thrust with your pelvis and your hips right. on the patients. Uh, yeah. go, go find those, go find that, that <laughs> those pages and, and see if they exist. <clears throat> well, I know and, one, of, one of the places I did it when I was first learning and I remember doing it was adjusting an atlas and I set it too deep. Cause I was worried about setting it short, set it too deep. And what I immediately felt was movement in C2 through my stabilization hand. Mm-hmm. And then I felt all the muscles tighten up. And when I felt the muscles tighten up, I went, Oh, that body said, I hate that. <laughs> and yeah. So that was how I knew. And I was like, okay, dial it down. And so that, but even so, pleasant. you know, a lot of times when you're working upper cervical, that area is so sensitive and they, they got an issue. If you, rotate your elbow a little bit too far forward and push it, you know, A to P when you should just be going lateral or maybe a little P to A, that just that little rotation is enough to set it off. But whenever you give the body something it doesn't like, 
there's going to be a response. And if it's someone that's, you know, in a really acute phase or someone that's, that's pretty fragile, the response is going to be much more severe. <clears throat> if it's someone that's, that's in a higher uh, state of health or much more, uh, their adaptability is much greater, the body's not going to meet it with that response because it is able to, to take care of it. But uh, when you look at the definition of subluxation, you know, in the later chapters of Stevenson's, you know, the subluxation comes from an unbalanced concussion of forces, which in your example, your thrust was an unbalanced concussion of forces. Mm -hmm. You put a force in, innate was not able to uh, adapt and meet it with the right resistance. And so then everything spasmed and went sideways. Well, and I realized over time that another part of the problem with that particular adjustment was that I did not have good stabilization on the C2. And so over time, learned how to get better stabilization to avoid the over-adjustment. And mm -hmm. so the, well, really both hands play into each other. And I didn't know that starting out. I thought, well, it's just here to make sure nothing horrible happens. <laughs> and then started right. to realize just how specific and particular that stabilization needs <clears> to be <throat> to make the adjustment more palatable to the body. So Yeah. And, and cervical chair is the most difficult thing to do because, uh, you know, 99% of the stabilization is in your stabilization hand. Uh, you know, the, the high, low, the knee chest slot table. I mean, they're prone. The table does all the stabilization, yeah. you know, and the bench, the, the table does most of the stabilization. You do a little bit of the stabilization, but in the chair, it's all in you. And we always teach that the three most important rules of adjusting are stabilization, stabilization, stabilization. And if you have poor stabilization, then you have to use a lot more force yes. to overcome that because you're you're thrusting in that next bending because there's no stabilization. And finally, when it gets to the end range of motion, then something moves instead of it just being a little clunk. Yeah, so I think we could sum up Gonstead's, um you boys adjust too hard as basically his way of saying you need better stabilization. Like better if there was something he was telling them, you need better stabilization because that's what he saw when he saw too hard a thrust. He knew not enough stabilization, more stabilization, <laughs> less thrust, better results. Yep. Um, so then too hard, too often. So, too often is an interesting one. I think so too. <laughs> because, you know, from, from the king, coming from the king of seeing people two, three times a day for a few weeks at a time, <laughs> Uh, you know, we don't do that a lot these days, but then he would go forever uh, without necessarily seeing him. And he has a very, very different practice than we had. Yes. Um, you know, he had obviously he had a had to build a hotel to see patients. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, I asked Dr. Troxel this question one time. I said, you know, why, why didn't he do, you know, wellness or maintenance care? And uh, Dr. Troxel said he asked Clarence that, and he said that he had so busy seeing people in crisis and new patients, he's not going to waste his time trying to sell the idea of, of maintenance or wellness uh, care, protection care on someone that, that doesn't want it. But my, you know, when I grew up and first practiced, I practiced 22 miles from the Gonstead Clinic in, in my hometown. <clears throat> and I, so I knew all kinds of people that saw Clarence. And, and uh, I had a, uh, when I first opened up, I was walking around, knocking on doors, introducing myself. And I, I ran into this woman that was, she was trying to hide from me. I go up to her front door and uh, 
I had, <clears throat> I had written down all these questions that I thought I might get asked. And so I come up to this door and I can see her. She's sitting in her house coat watching her soaps and, and I knock on the door and she's trying to slide out of the room without me seeing her. And I'm like, uh, and a screen door's open, uh, closed, you know, the other door's open. And I said, you know, I can see you. And she's like, shit. She comes up and I said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm Dan Lyons. I'm a chiropractor in Newtown. I'm just graduated from town. Oh, you're a chiropractor. And she, <clears throat> I said, yep. She goes, uh, do you do a specific technique? And I, I, I didn't think anybody would ask me that. And I, I said, yes. She goes, is it Gonstead? I said, yes, it is. And so now she comes out in the front stoop. She's like, oh, I was a patient of Clarence's since I was a little girl. And, you know, I see Alex now. And, uh, but I'm going to send you all my family. And it turns out she's a uh, grandmother of one of my, my high school buddies. And, uh, but she goes on to tell me the story that her family had a standing weekly appointment with Dr. Gonstead. And so they'd go in. They'd check in at the hotel. They'd slide a dollar or two to the gal behind the front desk as a tip. And then they'd go down to the care call and have dinner and drinks. And then when Doc was ready to see him, they'd, she'd page them down there and they'd come up and be seen because he was always, you know, an hour or whatever behind. So, you know, he did do regular care. So from those two perspectives, you know, too often, what does that mean? Uh, and I know all of us have said, you know what, I, I'm going to give this person just one more adjustment and regretted it at some point in time. We've all done it. We all continue to do that <clears throat> because you're, you run the scope and you see what the scope says and you palpate and the scope is not the be all end all. It is a tool. It's not the only tool. You know, what is your palpation like? Uh, what is the visualization like? What is the patient saying? Because it's all about their physiology. If you look at the normal complete cycle, you know, it's the coordination and the expression that happens down at the bottom of that normal complete cycle. That's really what we want. We want that to be normal. And, you know, are they seeing changes? So if they all say the patient's improving, then you should probably leave them alone. But we have a hard time with that. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if the, um, the concept of um, too often was kind of his way of saying, you're relying too much on their symptoms and not your objective findings. Because if you're going to know when to stop adjusting a patient, it's going to be because your scope says so or something else says so. It's not because the patient says so. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, and so, exactly. And, you know, like BJ had uh, in I, uh, the green book was, I don't remember which number, it's clinical case studies or case correlations. And <clears throat> there was a case that was, uh, I think it was case 1586 or 1856. And it was this guy that was having seizures. And so BJ, uh, the chiropractor sent him down and BJ adjusted him. <clears throat> and for a month, watched this guy keep having more and more seizures, up to 200 seizures a day. And people are begging BJ to adjust him or give him back some of his medicine. Because back then, if BJ was taking care of you, you got your urine and blood tested. If you took an aspirin, you're out. You know, it was free care. And so no, no meds, no adjustment. And so then, like 30 days later, all of a sudden, all the symptoms went away. The seizures just stopped. 
and the guy was able to go back and enjoy his life. And then he had some dental work and they started. So he came back and then he was in a small car accident. He came back and then the guy never, never came back again, but it was, uh, I know BJ was just looking at that pattern. <clears throat> and if he was not in pattern, BJ was not adjusting period. <clears throat> now you have to have some pretty big huevos to, to do that. When someone is there's, you know, they come in cause they're having seizures. That's their, the physiology that drove them in for care and they're having more and more and more. And you have to say, you're fine. You're fine. You're fine. That is, that is confidence. It, it is. It is. Yeah. And I remember as a student seeing that kind of thing and thinking, man, I'd like to be there one day, but I see how far away I am from that. <laughs> because especially as a student, you're thinking, well, if they come for help. I'm here to help. I need to make a big help on the first visit. And you're right to be like, no, your body needs to work its way through this. And it's funny how over time I've gotten more of that, where it's, you're fine, but your body needs to work its way through this. We need to let it work its way through. I don't need to feel the com compelled to do something and act because that's how you end up doing too hard, too often and in too many places. When you feel compelled to act, even though your better instinct tells you, maybe not so much. Exactly. And, you know, and the, the limitations of matter that uh, we talked about in the 33 principles, time is involved in those as well. You know, if you uh, take a, a, a body and physically load weight on them, if you put drop, you know, all of a sudden go from zero to 200 pounds, a lot of bodies are going to break. But if you slowly load up those 200 pounds over 10 minutes, their body can take it. Mm -hmm. And if you do it over a greater period of time, then their body can definitely take it because it has time to adapt and grow stronger. And it's the same way when you remove the subluxation, <clears throat> it's not like, you know, there's no light and you flick the light switch on and instantly bright light. The, it takes time for the body to heal and all those tissues involved in that mirror or the zone that that nerve, nerve affects, it, it takes time for that. So uh, that's where, you know, the too often comes in. We have to, and you're always better to err on the side of not often enough than too often, because if you do too often, you're introducing a force the body's not ready for, and that's, that's uh, destructive. Universal forces are always destructive, and your thrust is a universal force until innate adapts it. And if it can't, then it's still a universal force, and it's still destructive. You know, I found it interesting when my wife told me that in dentistry, they say it's better to cut less because you can always take away more bone. You can never put any back. And I went, okay, so this is a universal doctoring principle that it's better to aim short because you can always do more, but you can never undo what you've done. And so I thought, you know, there you go. It's, it's just basic wisdom to not overdo. Uh, and I, I, I thought that was interesting. <laughs> that, that is, that is very cool. Uh, and, uh, observation you made there because you know most of the world is all you know if one's good five is better that's right <laughs> you know oh scary scary yeah. scary stuff so then um so we've got too hard too often and now we've got too many places this is also an interesting one um because you hear there's the uh we're calling the religious fanatics who are like it's one bone only ever 
And then there's the people who are like, it doesn't matter, just dust all over. And then probably the truth is somewhere in between. So, uh, and the truth is, I would venture to guess, you probably don't adjust the exact same number of segments on every single patient. No. It depends on what they've got. And there are some that are bad. Um, and actually, I was going to say, based on the last, the last one we were just talking about, it seems to me that the worse off someone is, the harder time their body has adapting to the change. And so that comes in um, with the adjusting too often, but it also comes in with adjusting too many places. Because if somebody's body is really sick and, they're have, and they have a harder time finding that normalization, I don't want to give them, I don't want to give their body too much to be concerned with. I want to give it less knowing that I can always do more as they get into a better state. Yeah. And that's, that's really where the, the doctoring part comes in um, because you have to understand where, where that patient's body is. You know, I, I always, when I'm explaining schedule of care to patients, I say, you know, you're, you're like, uh, when people first come in, they're like a car that's trying to go up a hill, but it's stalled and it's rolling backwards. So you got momentum going in a negative direction. So then we have to work really hard to slow it down, stop it, and then get it going in the right direction. And once, you know, if it's in subluxation, so you have the Mopey model. So there's misalignment, there's occlusion, there's pressure and interference. And the interference is what makes a subluxation a subluxation. But, uh, you know, in GMI, we'll, we'll say a PRS is not a PRS is not a PRS. You can have a lot of posteriority, a little bit of rotate, right rotation, mm -hmm. and a medium amount of wedge or any variation of, of yeah. those. They can all be big. They can all be small, whatever. And it's the same thing. So interference, uh, you can have a subluxation that is more misalignment and fixation and just just enough to interference interfere but there's a lot of the misalignment that going there or you can have something that there's something else going on it's misaligned it, you know it's not that misaligned it's not that stuck but it's causing a lot of interference and you have to take care of those two things differently if the person in general their physiology is stagnant uh and if it, when they're those people it's usually not just the subluxation because we all have lives outside of uh the our our offices or hopefully we do and hopefully the patients do so you got someone that's living on you know all kinds of processed food uh they're sleep deprived they they drive three extra miles to go uh, from home to your office and to work because they want to avoid getting anywhere within a mile of a gym. And they, uh, they're drinking, you know, a handle of, of vodka every night. Their physiology is, it's going to take a long time for it to turn. Not because they necessarily need a bunch of adjustments, but because they are so burdened with all that toxicity. So there, you know, the biggest adjustment they need is between the ears to say, all right, I got to clean up my diet. I got to, I got to quit the drinking. I, I probably need to move my body and, and get in some type of physical shape. Um, and then you have the people that are, uh, they are doing everything pretty well. You know, they got a decent diet. They don't really drink. They don't, you know, they don't smoke any of those things. And then we adjust them. Those are the people that are usually the quick responders. And if they're not, then it's because that subluxation is there and they need a little bit more, uh, a little bit more uh, 
frequency, maybe not, maybe not uh, too many places. But to, going back to, I forgot that uh, on the second one, too often, Dr. Gantz said because he was seeing people from out of town, he would he would do it that way. He would give them a bunch of adjustments on the real acute segment or segments and get things, the ball rolling. And then even if they were in town, they would very often say, all right, go home. I don't want to see you for two weeks. We're going to see you in two weeks. So they put a bunch of work in in a short amount of time, and then they let the body uh, do what it can. And then they come back and see, okay, might check them and say, okay, we'll see you in a couple of days. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, and then they might do a bunch more care again, or they just start out with a little bit, but they, you know, almost like a bolus dose to get that mm -hmm. disc healthy. Cause it's not, you know, the Gonstead works all about the disc. You know, we need to get the disc healthy. If the disc isn't healthy, uh, you're in trouble. You're going to have degeneration and then you're stuck with always some level of interference. But going back to the, the third part, uh, you know, too many places. Uh, I think it was uh, Ron Zukowski and Jeff Wild got a hold of a video fluoroscopy unit and were adjusting while the unit was on. Mm -hmm. And you can see that there's a little wave that goes through the spine when you do that. It's like when you take a rope and you flick it and it little, makes a little snake wave that goes down there. So when, when you thrust... If you're adjusting a bunch of places, and Dr. Phyllis always says, like, if you're set L5, you know, sometimes you can get away with L2, but but not L3, L1, you know, if you had to go up there and you could do that. But you got to have a certain amount of distance because that wave is going to upset, and that wave is always biggest right next to the areas that you are adjusting. That's why stabilization is so important, and that's why you don't want to, you know, set a bunch of segments. The other thing is that your body's trying to heal, which is a process. And not only does it require time, but it also requires energy and effort. And it, you've got a certain amount of gas in your, your body's tank. And if you adjust one spot, it can focus all that energy on that one spot. If you adjust two, well, then in theory, you'd say it's going to get 50-50. If you adjust 10, well, now you got, you know, just a 10% of that energy going to that segment. So you're better off finding the major, fixing that and let innate and the lifestyle correct anything else. Because we've all had subluxations that were corrected. Uh, you know, I went to the gym and, and worked out and I felt something shift and it's better. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, but we've all had those experiences. And that's because innate is on the job 24 seven never letting you down. So we don't want to, uh, like BJ's epigram said, nature needs no help, just no interference. And we don't want to become the interference by adjusting too hard, too often, or in too many places. think about those um, I kind of go back to what I said on the first one I kind of wonder if all three are actually an admonishment to not rely so much on subjective findings but to 
look at your objective findings because too hard happens when the patient's telling you, I need more. Or I want to um, hear the crack. Yeah. I didn't hear so anything. Too hard. I hear that all the time. And, and I'll admit, you know, when I, I, I blew my back out, uh, I was a year in practice and I slept on a bench in Troxel's living room. And there would be times that, you know, he'd, uh, he was adjusting me three times a day. It was two weeks before I could stand up. And uh, he would, uh, he'd adjust me and I go, oh, you got to do that again. You didn't do it. And he'd just be like, Danny, just roll his eyes at me. And then, you know, like half an hour later, I'd be like, oh, I can move a little bit easier. I guess, I guess he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> and the well, and same thing, too hard is when the patient, uh, too hard is the patient wanting more, wants to hear the crack. Too, um, too often um, is the patient going, you know, that felt so good yesterday. You should do it again today. Do it again today. Do it again today. Do it again today. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and too many places is, well, if it worked down there, it's kind of like your, if one's good, five's better. Well, if that works so well for my low back, why don't you just do all of them? And so you get into that trap when you're listening to the patient and the symptomatology and you stay out of that trap when you let your scope and your palpation and your other findings guide you as to what you should do and probably more importantly, what you should not do. So that you, yeah, you keep it under control. And and when we get outside the you know the scope of chiropractic, I mean, we are not manual medicine. We get the body back to par. We are not a treatment mm -hmm. for headaches, hemorrhoids, you know, acid reflux, hangnails, any of the things that patients come in for. And so you know, the patient has a right to have other things besides subluxation going on. And they they come in with a symptom, and you you know it's it's, we live in an allopathic world where you go to your doctor to get rid of a symptom. And, you know, most chiropractors still practice and operate in that mindset. And so, you know, if the headache's not going away, then, then it's not my job. Well, maybe they got a brain tumor. Did you check for brain tumor? No. Right. So, <laughs> so you have, you have to always have those things in mind, but if you are uh, adjusting and the, the, symptom is not going away, you have to ask, are you adjusting? Are you trying to correct that symptom or are you trying to correct the subluxation? And sometimes the subluxation, even though it's, you know, in the region of the spine that may be related to it, it might not have anything to do with it. So you have to go back to the objective, uh, the objective indicators. They always have primacy over the, the subjective, but you can't, you don't want to um, completely dismiss them. I mean, the patient came in with the symptoms. You know, you have to honor them by talking to them, but you have to get them off focus on that 100% of the time. I was just listening to Fred Barge the other day, and he said the symptoms guide you to the subluxation. And then once you find the subluxation, you don't need the symptoms so much anymore. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. You know, That's kind of how it works. And, and you know, the, the scope, none of the tools are, are infallible. You know, there's times that you're not going to be able to palpate. There's sometimes uh, you run the scope and you don't get the reading you think you should. And you dig around with your fingers and you look at the x-ray and everything else says to adjust that segment. Uh, you should probably adjust. You got a hairy back. You got a bunch of, I got patients with neuro family. All the women have neurofibrotomas in there. You know, those little little like beads mm -hmm. of skin that stick out in those tumors. It's, it's impossible to run a scope on there and get a good reading. You're just dancing over all these things. So, it, you know, yeah. 
and sometimes I, I find myself, you know, I pick up the scope and I start doing it just out of habit. It's the first thing that you do. And I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, maybe if I twist the skin a little bit like this, I can read the little inch area there. And if, if that's not the right area, then I'm SOL. Uh, if you get someone that has a really hairy back, running the scope's difficult. So you have to be well-versed in what the tools really do, when and when not to use them and pay attention to them. But that's why we have we have all the tools so that you don't have to just rely on one. And uh, Dale Applegate, who uh, practiced in Indiana, he was one of the people that uh, Clarence gave a letter to saying he could teach their work. He used to go around and he would like unplug the view boxes on days and say, no x-rays today, boys. And so you couldn't use any x-rays. And then you'd go and grab everybody's scope. No scopes today, you know, uh, no palpating today. You just you, to make sure everybody was using all the tools and staying sharp with them all. Yeah, that that's a, a great way to practice. That's a great idea. I would, I yeah. mean, and when you're first in practice, I mean, it was all scope and x-ray. Right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, I was I was good at scoping because I interned for Troxel and for Rod Campbell. And uh, I was real good with x-ray and I, you know, had to work on palpation and work on palpation. So uh, taking a history and knowing when to dig down on certain things is, hey there, kitty, uh, <laughs> is certainly a, a lost art. You know, your history stops when the patient either dies or uh, releases from care. Because every time, you know, you're sitting there and you find something, you got to go back and look at the history or ask more questions and say, you know, what about this? Because patients forget stuff. You got to keep drilling down uh, to get to the bottom. Uh, it's not so much the symptoms. It is the, the, the details, not necessarily of the symptoms, but of their life or the incidents leading up to that, that will help you find that subluxation. Well, I'm, I'm sure you've had the experience too of you, you listen to the symptoms, you do the evaluation and you come to a conclusion of where the subluxation is. And then you think to yourself, really, that's where it's coming from. Oh yeah. And then you just go with it. And even when it works, you're like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why that subluxation was producing those symptoms or that pattern or whatever, but I don't need to know because in that mode, it's better to find the subluxation and fix it than to try to mentally power yourself to, well, these symptoms and this pattern, it must be a this, and I'm going to adjust that no matter what. I find the less I, I like try to force it with my thought and more just kind of take it in. It's almost like sometimes when I sit down to palpate, I, I do this mental thing of be one with the patient, like go inside and figure out what their body's doing because all that matters is just finding that subluxation. Where it ultimately is is of little consequence. But I also did like kind of what you're saying, but I did it with tables where I told myself, no knee chest today, oh. no high load today, because I need to be able to adjust anything from anywhere. And, and I did that. And it definitely helped with getting better at tables when I had some as a, as a young doctor that I was good at and some that I was horrible at. And I knew that the only thing that was going to happen over time is that gap was going to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh, yeah. Unless I forced myself to get good at it. Absolutely. You know, pulls. Uh... Uh, yeah, doctor. good pulls. Uh, and a, a young, <laughs> relatively young doctor who's been about out about eight years. He asked me, the chiropractor taking care of him is older, looking to retire, and he says, "How come? How come all he does is pulls?" I said, "Because he's getting old." I said, "It's just, you know." And you know, I did almost no pulls when I started. I was good at push. I was a big guy, 
Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I weighed like 330 pounds, so I didn't even thrust. I just lean over and eventually I was the irresistible force and the immovable object. And we both, I just <laughs> lean over until eventually it moved. Uh, uh-huh. and, uh, I don't do that anymore, but, uh, I, you know, so I, ne- I never pulled, but it's the pull is a tool just like mm-hmm. the scope or the x-ray. And so y- you're ridiculous not to use a tool at your disposal because there's times when that is better. And, you know, over the, especially the last few years, I've gotten much more uh, adept at using pulls. And every every day I go in the office and something, I'm like, ooh, you know, that's a, that's a little better. I remember being, uh, it was probably 20 years ago, we were at a seminar and it was uh, Dr. Troxel was going over ASEX pulls with me, I think Roger Kaspar, Rick Albert, you know, a couple other uh, older docs. I was the youngest guy in the room then. And, and some guy that had been out of a school like two, three years comes in. He's like, oh, ASCX polls. Atia just said, I just now, and this is like two years before he passed away. I just now feel like I'm getting the hang of these and understanding the ASCX poll. And this kid walks in, he's like, ASCX polls. Yeah, I got those all figured out. And we just all kind of chuckle. And he, the kid never asked. He just kind of shrugged his shoulders and walked out and missed out on, you know, all this genius. And, and you get, the more you study, you know, like, uh, uh, and then Dr. Gonstead's, you know, three part statement, the third one, third, you know, be ready for the need when the demand for chiropractic care increases, uh, study the spine and the, and the nervous system, every chance you get, our future will be our results. So the more you study those things, you figure out those little nuances, you try a little different than hand position and stuff. And you'll learn that, you know, sometimes you should pull something versus push it, or maybe do it prone, but you've got all those tables. You know, when I started out, every cervical chair, every cervical segment had to be set in the chair. Dumbest thing ever. You know, it was just <laughs> ego, you know, yeah. I'm going to do this on the knee chest. Well, no, you got a bench, you got a high, low, you know, slot table. And I'll tell you, they set differently on all things. And patients will be like, well, we always go on the bench. How come we're going over here? I said, because it's not the same as it was before. We got to find mm-hmm. what's going to be best now. So I had an epiphany as a young doctor when I had a, an L5 that I thought I can push this, but it needs me to pull it. And that's when I went, oh, it's not about what I can do. It's about what it needs. Mm-hmm. And I remember having that epiphany. And I was like, in that moment, I was like, I should have pulled a lot of things I pushed in the past. I'm going to write <laughs> that down so I can have that epiphany later today. <laughs> I, I just was like, oh, man, this, the, I need to be more focused on what the, what the civilization requires biomechanically and not just what I'm comfortable with or what I like to do. But you're right. As I get older, I'm like, I'm, I'm going to pull that. I'm going to put it on the knee chest because I'm going to hurt if I don't. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's kind of like reversing back to where I started. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, you know, and that's why you got to take care of yourself and, and make mm-hmm. sure that you are functional, which is, uh, you know, we got to, we got to take care of ourselves with our, our, our diet, our activity. Uh, you know, everybody should probably be doing shoulder stability exercises and staying somewhat strong, but you know, it does, there's so much science out there, just the problems outside of chiropractic and, and adjusting as a doctor, uh, when you have all of, when you drink too much, eat, you know, have a poor diet, blah, blah, blah. It just makes sense to do those things. Everybody should be doing them, but even more so since we rely on our wrists, elbows, shoulders, knees, 
you know, and spine to do our job. If something goes wrong, I can tell you, it's not fun when you're a year in practice and all of a sudden you're flat down on a table and you can't stand up and uh, you got to shut your office down for a month with no help. You know, I just had my mm-hmm. CA who still had to get paid uh, going in to answer phones, say, you know, nope, we don't know when he's going to be back, you know, and then you're yeah. praying that everybody comes back when you get back. Yeah. And just because yeah, the ego is bigger than the, uh, the, the brain. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. And, and we're not always aware that we're getting older. Um, when I was younger, if the patient wasn't positioned correctly, I would just move them until they were. Now that I'm older, I'm like, I'm not picking people up and moving them. <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> right. Right. I still do too much of that. I know. Sometimes the impatience takes over. You're like, it's easier just to move. Yeah. Well, I, I, I tap them more, but I, when they get up on the bench, I usually will offer a hand and let them, you know, pull themselves up. So I, I got to mm-hmm. stop that. <laughs> I'm just going to run away, grab the face paper quick and run to the next table. Yeah. So I guess uh, sort of in conclusion, this, this topic, what, what do you think is probably the best takeaway for people? Because I know, Gonstead obviously thought it was an important statement to make. He made it frequently. Um, and he, he was really trying to convey something. And so I think about that a lot, especially when seeing patients like, well, what, what was he really trying to convey? What, what's the thing that I need to keep my brain focused on? Cause I think he was also trying to get people a target because that's one of the hard things is when you're, when you're functioning and seeing patients, it's easy to get off course, mm-hmm. especially young, but it's really easy to get off course. And if you're seeing high volume, you get off course. And if you're seeing complicated cases, you get off course. And I think he was trying to keep us on course, but in his own interesting way, <laughs> without just saying it. <laughs> well, if you're too obvious, then people don't pay attention and it's, it never works. That's probably true. You know, uh, yeah. You know, the big thing is to, to stay in the moment all the time. And, you know, you have to be confident, but you don't want to be overconfident. You know, if you are not, uh, if you're not sure you should be adjusting that segment, then go back and start over. But don't get so full of yourself to think that you can't make a mistake, that you can't adjust mm-hmm. too hard, that you can't adjust too often or in too many places. And that those should be questions, you know, especially the, the uh, you know, when on, on a day-to-day visit, when you, you scope, you check the person and you find what you find. Look at the third third part, you know, is this too many places for where they are at physiologically uh, that day and in their life and in their journey? Uh, is that too much for them? And then this, I would go when you're ready to to thrust, you know, say, you know, be conscious. You're looking at who you got on the table uh, and and what their their spine looks like. What is the right amount of force? And then as you get ready to set their schedule of care. Now, you know, some people will say, you know, I'm going to see you three times a week for the next three months, you know, and they do huge care plans. I kind of chunk mine out in two week versions. Everybody knows what their schedule is basically like for two weeks. And so uh, it might be a little more work on my end, but I feel that the patients get better, uh, more, uh, not irrelevant. What am I saying? the care ends up being doled out more judiciously because I'm not saying we're going to see it three times a week for the next six months or daily, whatever. Uh, you know, some people, I got a couple of people right now, it's day by day. You know, I was seeing them twice a day. 
uh, you know, daily, then they know that as soon as we can, we're, we're spreading that out real fast. The, and it's always check. You know, I always they said, I, you know, I'm here to get adjusted. No, you're here to get checked and adjusted yeah. as necessary. And then, so to understand what is too often for that individual, you know, can we, can we let them go? Do we have to just turn them loose and, and see what their body does? Cause you, you notice if you pay attention, sometimes you got someone you're seeing, you know, uh, maybe it's once a week, maybe it's twice a week, maybe it's three times a week. And then they're gone for a little period of time. You know, they got a vacation or something and they come back. And if they adjust easier than they did their last time, then you know that you are seeing them too often mm, because the bodies tight. it's tightening up as a defense mechanism. And then you mm -hmm. just sit there and they come back and, and you, you lean over and it's a great set. You're like, all right, we're not going to see you. We'll see you next week or, you know, in two weeks, whatever. But you have to be yeah. present and always be uh, in the moment of what's going on with them and thinking through your, your chiropractic mind, not your, your business mind, especially yeah. for the young yeah. kids coming out of school, because, you know, you got to build a practice. I had a, I had a friend, uh, I graduated with, he practices out in, in Massachusetts and he had told me, called me up this years ago, we're in practice, I don't know, six, eight months. And he says, I had a guy that he'd been seeing for a while. And he says, you know, also I'll see you in a month, you know, and he'd seen him for three, three weeks for two weeks and twice a week for, for four weeks. And, you know, the typical Jim Parker, uh, thing. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, the, the patient says, Hey doc, can I ask you a question? He's like, sure. He goes, how often do you check your family? He goes every week. And he realized what he had just said. <laughs> and he, and he says, so if you see your family every week, why'd you tell me you'd see me in a month? And he's like, uh, cause I'm building my practice and I didn't want to lose you as a patient. Cause I, I need you as a patient. And he goes, all right, thanks for being honest. I'll see you next week. You know, <laughs> cause you know, sometimes people get it and, uh, you know, if you run your practice, you know, right, you're getting, uh, the, the greatest referrals, the greatest way to build your business is from referrals. And that comes from not only providing res results, but being honest and taking care of people on the other end. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. This has been a fast, fun conversation on a, what I think is an important topic, but I appreciate you coming on and doing it. It's been a lot of fun. But thanks for having me. It's always fun to sit and, and chat with you. We need to do this far more often. Yeah, I'll bring you on weekly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you got the time. You're a busy guy. Be a little bit much. So yeah. I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll see you next week. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining me. You, you bet. Thanks, Doc. Bye-bye. His many stories about Gonstead and the people who knew him are invaluable for gaining context to understand the meaning behind many of the stories we already know. If you're listening to this on Spotify, I've included a poll question, so be sure to check that out. If you haven't done so already, be sure to follow us, and if you could, leave us a review so we can continue to spread the Gonstead difference around the world. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.